Hi, you're listening to LTCCC's Nursing Home 411 podcast. I'm your host, Eric Goldwine, and in the interview, I'll be joined by geriatrician and researcher, Dr. Nathan Stahl. Nathan's been at the front line serving Ontario's long-term care residents, both as a physician and a researcher, advocating for more humane COVID visitation policies and other critical resident rights. We cover a lot of ground in our discussion, chatting about the collateral damages of COVID, Canada's long-term care COVID outcomes versus those in the United States, the weaponization of research, and much, much more. Stick around to the end of the interview, and you'll hear him share an incredibly fun story involving Blue Jays, COVID recovery, and 200 million Canadian dollars. Here's our music by Silverman Sound Studios. I'm here on Zoom with Dr. Nathan Stahl, a uh, geriatrician, researcher, assistant scientific director of Ontario's COVID science advisory table, uh, Canadian, uh, and perhaps most importantly, an unofficial consultant for the Toronto Blue Jays Major League (laughs) Baseball team. Uh, Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Eric. Uh, So we we spoke last week, uh, and I've actually, I've been lurking on your Twitter account for the better part of the last year. But you explained to me kind of how you balance your your time. You work in Mount Sinai, not the New York Mount Sinai, but in Ontario's Mount Sinai. And you also you also work as a researcher, uh, which is a lot of what I see from you just from from seeing your your publications and from seeing uh, what you publish on Twitter. But I want to start with your role as a, a geriatrician. Can you describe what you're what you've been doing and how that role has evolved in the last year or so? Sure. So um, geriatricians in Canada, not unlike the United States, are a relatively, I would say, rare species. Um, you know, we not a lot of people uh, like to go into geriatrics. Uh, we it's been well documented how you know care for older adults is undervalued. Um, so you know, geriatricians generally never, for the most part, um, are not you know have not been thrust into the limelight in the way that COVID nineteen has has done. So we're approaching almost a year of this terrible pandemic. Um, and, you know, my patient population has come under direct assault. Um, and so I have used many different ways, along with many colleagues who are clinical, non-clinical policy, non-policy research, non-research, to try and advocate uh, through data, through research, through policy to protect older adults during this terrible pandemic. So, you know, what has that meant? You know, so some of my time, yes, has been clinical work and I, I attend on the inpatient service at Mount Sinai Hospital in, in Toronto. I've attended on our COVID ward. Some of it was outreach. Uh, we had to long-term care homes. So for two months, we helped uh, stabilize a home that was experiencing a horrific uh, outbreak. Some of that is my routine geriatrics work, uh, whether it's, you know, looking after patients on the inpatient consult service. I have a very small outpatient uh, practice Um, and because care does not stop for all the other conditions during the pandemic. And then, of course, um, you know, 
I've spent a lot of time over the last year trying to bring data to the stories we were hearing about the horrors that were going on in long-term care homes. And I particularly focused that in my province of Ontario, which is home to almost 15 million uh, people. And I live in the most populous city uh, of, of Toronto. And you mentioned you mentioned working closely with two long-term care facilities. Can you go to, into a little bit more detail about, because uh, we're, we're a long-term care resident advocacy group, so that this is our target, uh, yeah. target audience. So, you know, what, it's not a, this has happened everywhere, but, you know, as, as health systems scrambled to prepare for COVID-19, they focused heavily on acute and critical care. And so in my hospital, I was actually redeployed to uh, be on backup for the intensive care unit, because I was one of the physicians that said that I felt comfortable working in the intensive care unit because of the work I do on acute internal medicine. Thankfully, unlike where you are in New York City, we never overwhelmed our healthcare system in the same way. But we did that at the complete neglect of our long-term care homes. And so in mid-April, the province actually took the extraordinary move of pairing up hospitals with long-term care homes in their area and making them what they called SWAT teams. Um, And so one of the long-term care homes that, that I was involved in, we led the clinical outreach there, um, along with colleagues in infection prevention and control, in nursing, in palliative care, was when we arrived, you know, most of the homes, 120 residents were infected. And when all was said and done, they had over 20 deaths. Um, And so, you know, the work involved direct clinical care to promote hydration for residents to provide active medical management, to consider who needed to be transferred to hospital, to provide palliative care for individuals who did not want to be transferred to hospital. And while that was going on, uh, I had colleagues working on stabilizing infection prevention and control, getting personal protective equipment uh, to the home, getting medical equipment. And so we really worked together collaboratively through this outreach for two months to stabilize this home in, in the outbreak. Yeah, so we're recording this. Uh, it's February sixteenth. Um, we're uh, what two months into the vaccination process, and everything is solved, right? Everything's perfect now, and in long-term care facilities, of course, Canada is going to do it better than the U.S. Uh, what's the current situation? Well, one, I'm not sure we did it better than the U.S. We always like to think we do it better than the U.S., but I, I'm not sure we did. The you know the challenges. Um, I think we did a better job of actually counting our dead than the United States. Um, I'm not sure that we even know in the United States how many long-term care residents have died, particularly in your state of New York. There's been huge controversy about undercounting of deaths and then later reporting of uh, many more thousands of deaths that have occurred. You know, the other clear distinction between the United States and Canada is the U.S. has always had way higher levels of uncontrolled community transmission. So there has been many more community dwelling people, not just older adults, but of all ages who have died in the United States than Canada. That has skewed our data. So we actually had out of all the uh, out of all the OECD countries, we had the highest proportion of deaths occur in long term care homes during our first wave. That was 80 percent. So four out of every five of our countries, long, uh, countries COVID-19 deaths occurred in long-term care homes. That, um, that proportion has dropped to somewhere around 60% to 66%. 
So still a really high proportion and, and higher than the United States, which again, there are issues with data collection, but sits somewhere, I understand around 40 to 50%, uh, it is a bit dynamic. So, you know, I, I think we've done worse in some ways. Um, and yes, the, you know, there was, there's been much written about this from, you know, American uh, experts in long-term care and the same holds here. You know, vaccines are not going to solve the long-standing issues in the long-term care sector that have created, you know, mass carnage uh, within our long-term care homes. And in fact, there is also tremendous uncertainty about the vaccination as well as, you know, um, how it, you know, the early signs are that it is effective against the variants. The early signs are that there are some lasting or durable immunity, but there is a lot unknown and there's also a lot of time ahead of us. And so, you know, we are in a, I would say it's, you know, certainly much more positive now than it was earlier, but we also in Canada have had far less upfront access to vaccination as compared to the United States. And so, you know, we've only vaccinated, uh, you know, in our in Canada, we rank at about 40th in the world now in terms of vaccination per capita, uh, and and we also acted slower to vaccinate our long-term care homes as well. Um, so, no, there are many underlying issues within the sector that makes it vulnerable and that will continue to be vulnerable throughout the rest of this pandemic and beyond. And are you seeing any um, non-COVID related? issues that are uh, maybe second or third uh, degree effects. I don't know if, I, if that's the right way to describe it, but, uh, but when you're working with geriatric patients, what kind of uh, secondary issues are, have you been seeing recently um, that aren't directly COVID related, aren't um, vaccine related? Yeah, I think throughout the pandemic and particularly within long-term care homes, you know, the term I use are collateral damages. Um, you know, some people have used the term unintended consequences, but I don't actually think they are unintended. They are, it's known. Unintended uh, assumes that you don't have any foresight to what's going to happen. We have known that some of the public health measures and interventions that we've imposed upon older adults in long-term care homes where we have you know, tried to shield them and protect them in quotation marks uh, against the virus by placing them in extreme social isolation has very much so led to uh, a ton of collateral damage. So uh, we've seen accelerated cognitive decline. Um, so particularly in the first wave when the lockdown on long-term care homes was very harsh, uh, I had, I, I spoke to caregivers of residents who said, I went back in and my loved one no longer recognized me because their cognitive impairment had progressed so rapidly. Uh, people who went from being able to walk will require a support with a couple of their activities of daily living, becoming wheelchair bound or breaking their hips and, and no longer being able to walk again or now requiring full support for their activities of daily living. And of course, there's been huge psychological distress. Um, and, um, you know, it's not just the anecdotal stories as well. It's also what's coming out in the literature. So in the United States, there's evidence on, on, on weight loss uh, because we lost access to family caregivers to assist with things like feeding. Our own research has shown that there has been small but significant at a population level, increased prescribing of psychotropic medications like antipsychotics, antidepressants. Um, and, you know, there is emerging data on the things like functional decline that, that I've referred to or that I referred to um, that we really have accelerated the decline of this population. And, 
this is, you know, the other sort of pandemic that has gone on in long-term care homes that homes have mightily struggled with is how do we protect those individuals who live in our homes from COVID-19 without completely destroying their lives in other ways. And I, I don't think we have actually found that balance in many jurisdictions in the world. Um, and the other thing that, that has been a constant theme throughout the pandemic is when society has opened up between the waves of our pandemic, we haven't opened up with the same speed or with the same intensity within long-term care homes. And I don't think we would ever expect to do so uh, recognizing the fragility of this population. But for many residents, there was no opening up at all. It's just been sort of one continuous episode of lockdown uh, or as some people have referred to them as pandemic prisons. Um, so, you know, and, and that's why we've seen, and I don't really like the prison analogy and I don't like to sensationalize it, but what we have seen is something, a, a new term that has really captured the side, the collateral damages I spoke about, which is confinement syndrome. And where does that term come from? It comes from the adverse effects of being in solitary confinement, uh, the sorts of things that I'm talking about, from sensory deprivation, the functional decline, the cognitive decline, the psychological and emotional distress. And we've seen this new syndrome emerge in long-term care residents in my patient population of the confinement syndrome, which one could have never foreseen talking about in any you know, serious clinical way prior to the pandemic. And re relatedly, uh, there's a group, uh, I think it's called the Essential Care Givers Coalition, and uh, they're trying to publicize that it's it's the one-year anniversary or ban anniversary. I don't know how they're going to pronounce it, but in the U.S., um, we've talked to so many families and uh, who haven't seen their loved ones in person for basically a full, a full year. And we hear from the ground about the, some of the anecdotes. And now we're also starting to see, as you mentioned, the research. Um, one, of the, one of the studies that you were involved in was about the increase, you said you mentioned there was an increased uh, rate of psychotropic uh, prescriptions. Uh, am, I, am I, do I have that right? Yeah. What is it, how did this study come to be? Uh, what is what are the implications? What are why why are might that be a dangerous thing for uh, for residents? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that you know, family stories, I believe, are the and resident stories are the most powerful, but they're often not the most persuasive for decision makers. And data can be very powerful, which is the role that I have tried to fill as a geriatrician, as, a, as someone who does research, and so. You know, it, it, it's, it's hard sometimes as a decision maker, uh, and, and particularly for homes, you know, the last thing they want to do is end up on the front page of the newspaper with a horrific long-term care home outbreak where they've run out of body bags. And that's their fear. And that's the, usually their one motivating sort of uh, ethos or their, what motivates the decisions they make on behalf of their long-term care residents. They don't always and continue to not appreciate you know, the balance and the nuance that's required in public health interventions and blunt infection prevention and control policies. And, you know, those stories of, you know, the accelerated cognitive decline and functional decline, they're not often captured, they're not displayed in the same way. And also, you know, when you're talking about a frail population that already has so much comorbidity and such a high rate of mortality, 
you know, it can easily be sort of brushed off as, well, you know, they were going to die anyways, or they already had cognitive impairment. So it wasn't really a big change anyhow. And so data is quite powerful. And so, you know, these are medications that we've literally worked for years through quality improvement initiatives to try and reduce prescribing of in long-term care homes, because we know, particularly for people with dementia, that these medications are harmful. They can even, for things like antipsychotics, increase mortality. And non-pharmacological or behavioral approaches are much more effective in managing these behaviors. And what we saw in the pandemic was a regression to our old behaviors where these drugs were inappropriate. Well, I, I shouldn't say inappropriate because we don't know always the indication, but there was increased prescribing of these medications. And a lot of that probably was reflective of the distress that residents were experiencing. You know, one of the things that I see as a success in my province of Ontario was actually being able to push the province towards having a more humane visitor policy. And one of the things that we really, really harped on in this, and, and this relates to sort of my pre-pandemic interest was in family caregivers. And, you know, there was sort of these hashtags that were trending on Twitter uh, and elsewhere uh, about quote, hashtag not just a visitor. And, and this really encapsulates the fact that not everyone who's trying to access a long-term care home during the pandemic is a visitor. A lot of them are essential family caregivers that are there as essential partners in care to provide direct, intense, and hands-on care to their loved ones. Um, and when you remove the presence of those people, you remove the people who are the eyes and ears of those residents. You remove the people who are best at pursuing those non-pharmacological behavioral-based approaches uh, that don't necessitate the use of, of psychotropic medications. And you promote feeding and, and well-being and, and, re and reduce the weight loss and, and, the, and the immobility that we have seen. And so, you know, part the reason to do that study was to give some of the emphasis to push decision makers to show these are the harms. Let's create a policy that differentiates between those two types of visitors. And so in Ontario, we've actually been able to move them where residents are allowed to designate two essential family caregivers that can enter the home without limits on time or access and even during times of outbreak so that we should never have a time where family are seeing their loved one die through a window and can't go in to help provide the care because the staffing within the home has collapsed around them. And so that I think was one of the ways that we really did use evidence to move evidence into practice and policy. Yeah, I remember uh, this was probably back in May or, or June, but uh, people were starting to uh, push the idea in the U.S. People were starting to push the idea of the essential caregiver, and I, I personally was a bit concerned because uh, no matter how essential COVID is, uh, is dangerous, and you're you're raising the risk. And one of the most compelling arguments for me was what you just mentioned is that these people are providing are providing critical services. And when you put that in context of uh, a lot of these facilities are understaffed, um, it seems like a win-win. Um, it's not always gonna be a win-win, but uh, they it seems like a way to um, uh, compensate for a lot of the staffing issues while helping the resident and also helping the caregiver in in some sense. The research you're doing, um, it's, they're based on a Canadian population. I'm, I would think that most of this would be relevant to U.S. nursing homes. Are there any, are there any caveats um, 
or any reasons why they wouldn't be? I think a lot of it is um, relevant. I mean, there are obvious differences um, in terms of our larger healthcare system as it pertains to, to, you know, nursing homes or long-term care homes. You know, one difference that I always point out is that we don't use our long-term care homes as post-acute care facilities in the same way the United States does. For long-term care homes in Ontario and in Canada, these are overwhelmingly... Um, a place for people to live and they don't transition in and out of a long-term care home. They, they go in there and it's usually a terminal destination for those individuals. Most of them die there or if they don't die there, they die in the hospital. It's very rare. Whereas in the United States, we know that they also are used, particularly the SNFs as post-acute care facilities. Um, and so, you know, that's a difference because our population is arguably at a broader level, at a population level, frailer, more complex than if you just looked at the U.S. nursing home population, who has some individuals who are using it to convalesce or recuperate after a surgery or hospitalization. But, you know, a lot of the issues that that we've identified in our research, whether it relates to the role that for-profit has in terms of demonstrating worse COVID-19 outcomes, uh, crowding within long-term care homes, so having residents in three or four-person rooms, uh, having worse outcomes in those homes. These are issues that also exist across the United States as well. Uh, and, and I think that's reflected the fact that we've been able to publish our work within American journals, um, which tend to be some of the most broadly read across you know, the world. So we were speaking more about your formal research before, uh, as I noted earlier uh, in the interview, is you got on my radar through your Twitter account. Uh, God knows how somebody retweeted something. And um, then I ended up like, uh, there was like some cool graphics and then you became just a regular on my Twitter feed. How have you been using this um, during, during COVID? And are you just, are you just publishing the information that you, uh, are you repackaging your own research? Are you, um, just sharing other people. Can you talk a little bit about your, how you've used your Twitter feed in COVID to convey this information? Sure. So yeah, I, I view Twitter as a dangerous double-edged sword. <laughs> uh, but I think, you know, what we have seen for better and for worse is um, the use of Twitter to rapidly disseminate medical and, and epidemiological information. And you know, we have seen primarily the infectious disease uh, community become, you know, veritable walking celebrities because this has the, been the top of the news cycle hour by hour, well, you know, with a few other events sprinkled in, like your election and, and other things, but, uh, you know, has been the top of the news cycle for, and understandably so, for now a year. And, um, you know, just like there's not a lot of geriatricians, there's also not a lot of people focused on long-term care research and who also care primarily as their primary focus of interest about what happens to older adults and long-term care residents. And so, you know, there are other people on Twitter that have, you know, are also sharing this information that, 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 you know, I read from, but the point was to use this as a tool to credibly communicate with people about what's going on in long-term care homes. So, um, on a daily basis, I, I actually tweet out uh, uh, a low sort of living graph I have of the long-term care cases and deaths um, in our province so that people can see what, what's going on. Um, 
I certainly collate other people's research and distribute that when it's of interest. I do it also with my own research. And it's also an effective tool to amplify this, these messages because you know journalists frequently lurk on Twitter too, and these things get picked up in the mainstream media. So it is a bit of a virtuous cycle in that, in that way. Of course, also you attract um, the darker side of Twitter, which are you know, all the nefarious characters and trolls that may be anti-vaxxers or anti-maskers or anti-lockdown that say all sorts of nasty things. And you also attract people who disagree with you, uh, which is a good thing, but some of them don't disagree always in the most friendly way. Uh, and so, you know, and you can get bogged down in this and, and, and uh, you know, it does take time, but I think on, on balance, it has been tremendously helpful to advance the agenda uh, there are also decision makers on there as well, I should say, right, um, to advance the agenda of what we need to do for older adults. And here's what the best emerging evidence worldwide is to do so. Mm -hmm. yeah, and the example that comes to mind that we spoke about last week was your uh, your article on for-profit versus non-profit outcomes in long-term care facilities. And uh, you, you can, you can, summarize the findings, uh, which I found interesting, but I found more interesting about how those findings were, um, were repackaged by all of the, uh, all of the parties involved. Right. Yeah. And that, and that wasn't just a Twitter thing. Um, you know, so we, we, you know, we saw in the, in the news, um, through, you know, great journalism that, uh, they, they were collecting data showing that for-profit homes were having worse COVID-19 outcomes than nonprofit homes. And, so we, we looked at this during our first wave. We published this in the Canadian Medical Association Journal, and we showed that for-profit homes, which pre-pandemic have demonstrated worse outcomes and the fact that they deliver inferior care across a wide variety of outcomes, um, whether it's uh, levels and quality of staffing, mortality, transfers to hospital, and, and relevant to uh, the pandemic, they have had more complaints from residents and families and more deficiencies uh, and citations for violations in terms of infection prevention and control. Now, those outcomes uh, are not always consistent. It's on a black and white issue. Not every for-profit home is terrible and every nonprofit home excellent, but this is what the general trend has showed over a couple decades of research. And that's American, that's Canadian, that, that spans across, uh, across borders. So what we found was that for-profit homes as compared to nonprofit homes, we're no more likely to experience a COVID-19 outbreak. That was related to the incidence of COVID-19 and the communities surrounding long-term care homes, which makes sense. We know consistently that's been the greatest risk factor for whether homes are gonna experience long-term care home outbreaks. But what we found was when the virus got into the home, for-profit homes as compared to non-profit homes had outbreaks that involved twice as many residents and 78% more deaths. So they really failed to contain the outbreak uh, and to prevent loss of life. Um, and that was particularly explained by the for-profit homes that had older design standards. So these were homes that were old, outdated buildings that had design standards that met or fell below the year 1972. And so these are a lot of ward style rooms, crowded hallways, outdated HVAC systems, uh, and additionally chain ownership. So those large national or provincial chains, um, which have also prior to the pandemic demonstrated poor quality of outcomes. So what did people do with these findings? Well, of course, there are very charged opinions about this issue. The for-profit sector 
focused on the fact that for-profit homes were no more likely to have outbreaks. Uh, and actually, our Minister of Long-Term Care quoted me on the floor of our parliament uh, saying that even Dr. Stahl's study in the CMAJ showed that for-profit homes are no more likely to have uh, COVID-19 outbreaks as compared to non-profit homes, ignoring the fact that they had larger and deadlier outbreaks. The other side that, you know, as Canadians, we are always wanting to be more universal and more public um, uh, who, who are very interested and for very good reasons at eliminating all for-profit interests from the sector, accused me of providing data that exonerated the for-profit sector by showing that, oh, the association was largely explained by the older design standards and the chain ownership and that it was obviating the association on, on for-profit status. So um, this was an example where, you know, as a sort of naive, well-intentioned geriatrician and, and researcher, released findings that were weaponized in different ways uh, and, and and sort of criticized for my own interpretation of data, um, which was an interesting experience. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, and that's that's just one of the inevitabilities of, of putting stuff out there. I'm not sure there is a way to prevent that unless you have like a 50-person uh, uh, PR team as soon as you pr click publish on, on this article, which uh, uh, doesn't seem all that feasible. Any quick words of advice? Uh, our audience is largely like ombudsman, uh, family members. Any quick words of wisdom on how to navigate what's helpful, what's uh, manipulative uh, on social media? <laughs> um, I, I, I candidly don't think I've entirely figured it out. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I live by a, I live and die by a few words during this pandemic. One of them is what has become one of my pandemic, I'll call them heroines, which is Dolly Parton, uh, who you'll know actually invested in the Moderna vaccine. Um, and I think is just a remarkable human being. But one of her lines uh, that I continue to come back to, um, or one of her quotes uh, that I continue to come back through throughout this pandemic is the way I see it, if you want the rainbow, you got to put up with the rain. And so when, 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 you put yourself out there publicly and, and you take a stand on something, um, there are going to be people who come for your head. <laughs> and so I've learned to live a bit more with the rain. I mean, sometimes it definitely crosses the line. Uh, I've had people call up my office or send crazy letters, crazy emails. Um, but, you know, I've sort of lived by that. The other thing is, um, you know, I don't negotiate with terrorists. <laughs> so I try, I try not to engage with people that are obviously crossing the line. Um, and I just sort of, you know, silence is also uh, another reasonable response. It can be hard. And I kind of sit there and I get all riled up and I, you know, I look at what they're writing about me or impugning my professional reputation. And I sort of write something out and then I sort of stab myself in the eye and delete it and walk away for five or 10 minutes. And I think, you know, those two kind of things. It's, yeah, it's, it's a double-edged sword. It, it can be emotional. You got to put up with the rain and don't negotiate with terrorists would be the words that I live and die by. <laughs> All right. Uh, so to, to bring this full circle, I mentioned at the top uh, that you were a unofficial consultant for the Toronto Blue Jays. Um, I was referring to, uh, there was a story um, I have up on my monitor here on Sportsnet. I think it was also in the Toronto Toronto Sun about how Dr. Nathan Stahl, uh, basically, if we were to connect the dots, you're the reason the Toronto Blue Jays uh, assigned this $150 million outfielder who is going to win them the World Series. 
Uh, can you give a little backstory on uh, on this? I, I don't know if my summary left out a detail or two. Well, I hope your summary is accurate because <laughs> if the Jays win the World Series, uh, you would. Uh, that is perhaps one of the things I most wish for in this world. Um, so, uh, you know, look, um, <laughs> I would never usually be talking, or I never would, uh, in any public sense, about a patient interaction that I had, but um, it happened to end up through actually uh, not because of me within within mainstream media. So. Uh, over the December break, I was actually uh, attending at my hospital on um, the general internal medicine ward. We had a lot of COVID-19 patients at the time. And one of the patients who was admitted to me um, was the wife of the former CEO and president of the Blue Jays, Paul Godfrey. Um, and, you know, I, I didn't tell anybody about this. I looked after her. Thankfully, she, she, we sent her home. Um, she got better. Um, and, I think it was New Year's Eve or New Year's Day. I looked in the paper uh, and I saw my name that uh, Nathan Stahl uh, or that, that, that this woman was admitted under my care at the hospital. And I said, how did this come to be? At the, at the time, there was actually a scandal in, in Ontario that our finance minister, um, perhaps for you, for, for us, this is a scandal. For the United States, this is probably common day practice, but um, that our finance minister actually traveled out of the country to St. Bart's. Uh, and, you know, our provincial leaders and our prime minister had urged everyone to follow the public health guidelines and not to travel outside of our borders and to remain at home. And so our Mr. Godfrey, who was the former president CEO of the Blue Jays, was actually his protege was the finance minister. And so the media were concerned that he was also in St. Bart's. And so I was the alibi to say, no, no, look, uh, my wife was under the care of Dr. Nathan Salt Mount Sinai. But within that, I would talk to Mr. Godfrey to update him about his wife's condition uh, on a daily basis, as I do with many of my other patients. And he asked me at the end, you know, is there anything I could do for you? And I said, well, you know, I actually happen to be a colossal Blue Jays fan and I have been a lifelong fan. Um, you know, I, we have a core of young, good players. I know you're not the president CEO anymore, but, you know, I have uh, a wish list of players I'd like the Blue Jays to swing big on. And one of them is George Springer. Um, so, you know, go help the Blue Jays go get George Springer. And I didn't really think anything of this. And the Blue Jays did go on to sign George Springer. And what I came to understand was that Paul Godfrey had actually called the CEO of Rogers, which owns the Blue Jays, to, to talk about this conversation he had had and, and my desire to sign George Springer. At the time, I knew that George Springer, you know, was down to either the New York Mets, and I'm not sure if you're a Mets or a Yankees fan. Um, Phillies fan. A Phillies fan, okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, he was down because he's from Connecticut. So it, it was the Mets or the Jays. And we always have a harder time. You mentioned 150 million U.S. dollars. But don't forget, um, we have we <laughs> they have to pay that in Canadian dollars. Right. So that's almost 200 million Canadian dollars. And then we have higher taxes here in Canada. So it's always hard. It costs us more. And then it's a disincentive for the players to sign here unless they reimburse them in other ways. So um, unofficially. Uh, I, I guess maybe peripherally sort of contributed to his signing, but um, you know, that, <laughs> you know, that, that has, you know, if that's one of the, you know, that's one of the nicer, I think we all need some sort of feel good stories within this pandemic. I do hope though, that, uh, you know, that, that we, you know, my, my, one of my, one of my um, 
regrets in in the last few years is watching actually the New York Mets lose to the Kansas City Royals because I knew that the can it should have been the Blue Jays and not the Kansas City Royals. Um, <laughs> I knew I know we would have beaten the Mets in 2015, um, and so you know if we can return there, we we actually won the World Series as you may know in 1992 and 1993 back to back. We've also won the NBA championship in 2019. Uh, so, uh, and we, we don't need to bring that up. I'm editing that out. It didn't happen. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you're a Phillies fan. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a, Sixers fan. a 76ers fan. I mean, yeah. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. So that, that was one of the, <laughs> we've had a lot of sports joy in our city. Uh, and that certainly the shot from Kawhi Leonard, um, was one of the greater moments. I, I'm sure it was one of the more painful moments and, uh, I'm hopeful now our, the next up is going to be the Blue Jays. <laughs> All right. And to be clear, uh, if if you're listening to this and it's six months from now and George Springer turns out to be batting uh, 200, 220, uh, you can you can send uh, Nathan a, a DM or you can tweet at him at, at Nathan Stahl. That's N-A-T-H-A-N-S-T-A-L-L. Well, that's uh, as the guy who, who brought in this 150... 150- <laughs> $200 million uh, bust. So we close, uh, we close the interviews with, uh, with guest recommendations. And uh, I'm going to ask you for one long-term care related item. It could be a book, movie, TV show, anything other than one non-long-term care. So let's start with the LTC. I mean, you know, one of the um, things I'm really looking forward to um, in terms of um, in terms of a, a book related to long-term care, our preeminent um, health journalist in Canada, someone named Mr. Andre Picard, and he has a book coming out called uh, "Neglected No More." Um, and this book is coming out, uh, I believe, uh, sometime in the next month, um, and it's focusing on. Um, the sort of horrible state of long-term care in our country um, and how it took COVID-19 to sort of open our eyes to the inhumane conditions, our overworked and underpaid staff and the lack of oversight. Um, And really he talks about the crisis of elder care and how there's an urgent needed prescription to fix this broken, or what is the urgent needed prescription to fix this broken system. His book's going to be coming out, I believe, within the next couple weeks. It's called Neglected No More. So I'm very much looking forward to reading that. Um, in terms of a, non, um, a non-long-term a care uh, piece of whatever we want to call it, um, some escape, um, you know, I am a, in addition to being a huge uh, sports fan, um, I am also a huge music fan and um, you know, there's been lots of people who have had pandemic playlists um, and, and all sorts of songs uh, related to the pandemic, but one album that um, has really, I think kept me going continuously out throughout this pandemic and particularly um, when things seem dire is actually, uh, I don't know if you've heard it, but uh, well, you've heard of him, but it, it's actually Prince's album, Piano and a Microphone. Um, and it's one of the last albums that was released before his tragic death from opioids. Uh, and it's just a, a long lost recording from 1983, where he's literally 
sort of tinkling the ivories in his studio and singing in a continuous take uh, throughout the album. And I've just found sort of his voice, his genius and his artistry just so soothing during extraordinarily difficult times. Um, and something also that has allowed me to concentrate also when things seem overwhelming and um, I'm trying to you know, write a paper or focus on my research. I've always come back to this album throughout the pandemic. Uh, we'll we'll link to both of those in the show notes, um, and also we'll link to your studies and um, and that Sportsnet uh, George <laughs> Springer report. Uh, thanks so much for for coming on, and uh, appreciate uh, appreciate your the work uh, that you're putting out to the public, and then the work uh, the work I'm not saying, uh, but it's 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 been really informative to me, and appreciate you taking the time here. No, thanks for having me, Eric, and uh, stay well. And let's all hope we have a better future for long-term care homes, whether it's Canada, the United States, or across the world. I mean, I think one of the things that you asked me about Twitter, but also it's been, it's been the pandemic has led to an acceleration of collaboration, right? And probably you and I wouldn't be talking today without this happening. And I wouldn't be collaborating with people all over the world, you know, if the pandemic hadn't happened. So that there have been many silver linings. We just need to continue to invest in, in those relationships and those collaborations to make meaningful change for our most vulnerable.